Hi, hello, this is Grace, and welcome back to U.S. History Cracked, the podcast where we learn everything about American history. This is part three, episode three, of our journey through American history, and today we will be talking about the rise of mass democracy. It will mainly be focusing on Andrew Jackson's presidency, as well as some of the events that occurred while he was president. Starting off, we have the corrupt bargain of 1824. After the 1820s, America became more democratic with the expansion of suffrage. So remember how before it was like two-fifths of all the, pop- all the male population. Now, after the 1820s, suffrage is extended to all white men. This meant that there will be more people wanting agrarian things. So if you think of it this way, before it was only like aristocrats or people who who were religious. So those people might have different views from the common white man who are most commonly farmers. So these farmers are going to be wanting different things. So at that time, the common man was the big victor and that was mostly white manhood suffrage. The 1824 election was actually one that is quite messy. So first of all, we had four candidates. Andrew Jackson, Henry Clay, William Crawford, and John Quincy Adams. Oh, by the way, John Quincy Adams is really, really different from John Adams. All four of them were Republicans, and three of them were a favorite, quote-unquote, of the respective regions. So they were probably the most liked or most popular in the places they came from. Jackson, Andrew Jackson, got the most popular votes and the most electoral votes, but failed to get the majority in the Electoral College. So then after this, what happens now is that it goes to the House of Representatives. Clay was eliminated from the election um, since he came forth, but he was the leader of the House of Representatives and he really hated Adams, so he threw his support behind John and he really oh, and then he really hated um he really hated Adams he really hated Jackson so he threw his support behind John Quincy Adams so he hates Jackson so he supports Adams these names are really getting really mixed up so in the end John Quincy Adams was president Clay was then appointed the secretary of the state which is actually really well known as the stepping stone to presidency. So usually if you're secretary of the state, the next term, it would most likely be um, taking over the president position. So because Clay helped um, Adams get the president position, um, Adams rewarded Clay with the secretary of state. So this angered a lot of the Jacksons as well as the people who supported Jacksons because they thought that they were cheated out of presidency, which indeed they were. This is why it was called the corrupt bargain. John Quincy Adams was a very good politician, but he lacked the people's touch. He urged roads and canals to be built as well as astronomical observatory. Public reaction was mixed. They're like, okay, construction was good, but not like, observatories for astronomy that's they th- people at back back then thought that that was really in- irrelevant the south feared that the government would continue collecting tariffs in order to fund these uh, fund these constructions and as you may know the south really really hate tariffs and taxes he also tries to curb the overspeculation of land and deals with the indians very fairly 
So he served a very mediocre um, term as the president, and next up we're going to have Jackson. Jackson used the corrupt bargain to his advantage and successfully turned public opinion against an honest and honorable president, Adams. But John, Ad John Quincy Adams supporters also hit below the belt and even like hit below the belt in other ways that Adams wouldn't have done so himself. So they probably said some really mean things about Jackson and really went over the line to supporting their president. White men liked Jackson more than Quincy Adams, and in the end, Jackson wins. Because if you recall, remember that um, suffrage right now is to all white manhood. The Old Hickory was Jackson's nickname. He already battled many diseases and challenges. Some rumors say he survived two bullets lodged in his body. He's a very passionate man with a violent temper. And he was a Western aristocrat and owned many slaves. But Surprisingly, he behaved like a common man. Jackson was anti-federalist and thinks that the government was for privileged only. Now let's talk about something he put in place called the spoils system. The spoils system essentially rewarded supporters of Jackson with good positions in office. Jackson rewarded his supporters in a way, basically he's saying, I'll give you a position in office if, because I value your loyalty to me. But the problem here is that some people aren't fit for positions, but yet they were still appointed through the spoils system. And you can already see how this may be causing future conflicts. This system actually shapes American politics in a negative way. Samuel Swartwout was the first ever person to steal from the government because of the spoils system, awarding him the lucrative post of collector. He secured, a he secured such a stronghold um, with the spoil system that it, was so long, it took so long to get rid of this system overall. So already, the, I, the, the reason why I'm giving you an example of Samuel is to show how the spoil system is already causing damage. This guy who was awarded with the position of post of collector just stole a lot of money from the government. Moving away from the spoil system, let's talk about the tariff of abominations. So, first of all, before I get into that, just note that the South are the ones who really hated tariffs, and the people in the North do like the tariffs because they thought it was a way of protecting the economy. In 1824, Congress increased the general tariff from 23% to 37%. In 1828, Jackson, who really, really dislikes the tariffs, he decided to pass a super high tariff, as high as 45%. Now you may be wondering, isn't Jackson the common man who really hates tariffs? Why did he pass such a high one? So his logic is actually quite ironic. He passed such a high tariff on purpose, because he wanted to force um, tariff supporters to change their minds. His main goal was to pass one so high to show that high tariffs are going to fail, so you should like low tariffs. But surprise, this tariff backfires and the tariff passes. Southerners named it the Tariff of Abominations and they obviously highly disliked it. There was a slave rebellion which only made the white men control slaves even tighter since they were scared. That was just a side note. And in 1828, John C. Calhoun secretly wrote the South Carolina Exposition, which was calling for the cancellation of tariff by all states. So someone's already trying to secretly get rid of it.
Now let's talk about the nullies, or the nullification crisis. This occurred in South Carolina, who was threatening to not pay tariffs. So anyone who is threatening to not pay tariffs, they're also known as the nullies. And these people were in South Carolina. In 1832, Congress passed tariff of 1832, which lowered the tariff down to 35%. The South still hated it, even though it dropped by quite a bit. The 1832 elections, the nullies won a void within the South Carolina boundaries. So they were able to get rid of it only in South Carolina. Now there's this big controversy of the federal government versus the power of the states. The tariff of 1833 was a compromise proposed by Clay to gradually reduce the tariff so that by 1842 it would be down. Uh, but the, this was um, one of Clay's compromises, but another bill was passed called the Force Bill. This was passed by Congress, and it basically said that Congress can use military to assert power if the tariffs aren't paid. So it's kind of like a protective measure. Now let's talk about something more negative called the Trail of Tears. In 1830, many Indians were stranded as new states emerged. Indians were often tricked by formal treaties, but took away their land. Think about it, a lot of manipulative politicians can easily trick Indians into them giving them their land. Many people did respect them and tried to Christianize them. But out of all of them, there were five civilized tribes, which the five civilized tribes, which was composed of five Indian groups that really tried adapting themselves to modern life. In 1828, Congress says that one of the tribal councils are illegal, and Congress makes all of the decisions over Indian lands and affairs, even though that these Indians appealed to and won in the Supreme Court. So Jefferson just straight up decided to refuse or recognize the decision that was made by the Supreme Court. In 1830, this is where it was really bad, where they issued the Indian Removal Act where they decided to move Indians to Oklahoma, which was west of the Mississippi, where they could preserve their culture. Now, this may not sound that bad, but the bad part is the Trail of Tears, which is the process of resettlement that happens in the next presidency, where thousands and thousands of Indians died. Some Indian groups did attempt to resist, but as usual, they were crushed. Now, let's turn away from Indian affairs and look at the Bank War. Now, if you remember previously, this sounds really familiar because in previous episode, we mentioned a bank war between Hamilton and Jefferson. Now, this time, it's not between Hamilton and Jefferson, it's just Andrew Jackson versus the bank. Andrew Jackson, like most Westerners, didn't trust the Bank of the United States because they thought that this bank was a tool for the rich to get even more rich. Because the thing is that the, this bank, they created coin money, but not paper money. There's a reason why they do that. First of all, money supply determines inflation, which is something really significant to the Westerners. Hard money just means that, um, money, that is, money supply that is determined by the amount of precious metals you have. That's really fixed because think about it, you can't clone or produce metal, right? You can't produce precious metals. So there's not going to be a lot of inflation. Paper money, since you create it and we produce it, that would cause inflation. Now you might be thinking, well, what is inflation? Inflation is when the prices of goods rise. And contrary to that is when they fall, that is called deflation. 
Now, there's two sides of this. There's people that are in favor of inflation and people that are against inflation. There's also reasons for why they take that side. And this is also why they are against the Bank of the United States, because once again, coin money does not encourage inflation, right? So the people who are in favor of inflation are the people that owe money. So these include the farmers or the poor. You might be wondering, well, why? Why would they want inflation if they owe money? That's because it would be easier for them to pay off their debts with inflation because they would be making more money without the loan increasing. So as inflation occurs, the loan doesn't gain any, the loan doesn't increase at all, but the amount you make increases. So then you'd be able to make more money in a shorter amount of time and pay off those debts and loans. Now, the people who are in favor for deflation are the people that lend money, so the rich or the bankers. You want deflation when you're rich, since it's easier to loan the money to the poor who actually need it during deflation. Because deflation, the money goes down, right? So where are they going to get the money to pay off their debt? They're going to get more loans from the rich and the bankers. So this is why um, the Bank of the United States are using coin money for the rich, but not paper money. And this is why Andrew Jackson, like most Westerners, didn't trust this bank and wanted to get rid of it. This bank was led by Nicholas Biddle, and it was harsh on Western wildcat banks. Wildcat is a term for banks that were really unstable and gave out a lot of credit too leniently. So in other words, they're just random banks that don't support a stable economy. But the thing is that the Bank of the United States did indeed serve the interests of the rich more than the poor. In 1832, Henry named a bill to reach harder the Bank of the United States. He did this because he knew that with either decision Jackson made, he would lose supporters. So in the end, this charter was passed and then vetoed by Jefferson, who said it was quote-unquote unconstitutional. This shows the power of the president as he ignored the Supreme Court once again. Now let's talk about Old Hickory versus Clay. So a new third party emerged called the Anti- Masonic Party. They shared Jacksonian ideals, but they were against Jackson. Clay had support of elites, but Jackson had the poor who voted as well, and as you may already know, they take up a lot of the population. So then Jackson won the election of the 1832, marking Henry Clay's third defeat. That's really sad for this guy. So Jackson withdrew federal funds from the Bank of the United States and drained its wealth. He was like, yo, we got to do something about this. And he decided to take all the money from the banks. So then in 1836, the Bank of the United States died. Since it was the, and because it was the only source of sure credit in the United States, hard times fell on, West, fell on the West because the Wildcats were really unreliable. Jackson uses the funds he withdrew from the federal bank and he gave them to smaller banks. Now let's talk about the birth of a new party called the Whig Party. They emerged from their common dislike of Jackson and they disliked Jackson and supported Clay's American system and internal improvements. Once formed, U.S. would have at least two major political parties going forward. So in the election of 1836, Jackson was too old, so he offered Martin Van Buren to run. The Whigs were suffering from disorganization, and they tried to offer a candidate. Plan the, their plan was to make sure that no one got a majority, so it, it would go to the House of Reps where they would win. 
but this backfires and Van Buren won the election of 1836. Now, he was the first ever president to be, in, uh, be born in America, and he lacked the support of many Democrats. The sad thing and very unlucky thing about him is that he inherited the depression caused by Jackson's Bank of the United States killing. So that's a very unlucky man if you ask me. So now let's actually talk about the depression. The panic of 1837 was caused by wildcat bank loans. Remember when it got money from the Bank of the United States and now it was just giving out loans randomly. It was also caused by the overspeculation and the specified circular where the, the idea that debts had to be played in gold or silver, which no one had. So that was kind of an interesting way to go about it. The failures of crops due to the Hessian fly also worsened this situation. Now this panic really hurt Van Buren, even though he really didn't cause it and it was Jackson's doing. The Whigs proposed expansion of bank credit and higher tariffs and subsidies for internal improvements. To all, Van Buren said no. Instead, he proposed the Divorce Bill, which is a bill that was going to separate the bank from the government, storing money in vaults of larger cities, keeping the money safe but still unavailable. So Texas is now a new idea that popped up. Americans continued to wish for Texas. So now Mexico gained their independence and the Mexican government brought 300 families into a huge area of land to settle. The conditions were that one, you had to become a Mexican citizen, two, you had to become Catholic, and three, no slavery was allowed. But the people who settled in that area were largely ignoring these conditions. Texas resented the foreign, quote-unquote, government led by Sam Houston. In 1835, Mexican director Santa Ana raised an army to suppress the Texans, who then captured their di the Mexican dictator. Um, but then at this time, Texas was supported by Americans during the war, but Jackson didn't recognize them as an independent nation. The thing is, many Texans wanted to join the Union, like United States, but the thing that's blocking this was the issue with slavery and their sectional balance. In 1840, William Harrison was nominated, and this, he was popular from a few events like the Tippecanoe and the Battle of Thames from 1811 and 1813. The Whigs advocated a poor man's president, and Harrison won the election. So when Federalists had dominated, democracy was not respected. Politicians had to bend to appeal to people. Popular ones were ones who claimed to be born in log cabins with humble backgrounds. Aristocratic ones were scorned, so you have your intellectual, clean, and well-dressed. Those people were really looked down on. The Western Indian fighters were military commanders were also very popular, so people like Andrew Jackson. The new democracy was universal white man suffrage. And in the end, we have a two-party system. We have one, the Democrats, such as, and they supported liberty, state rights, representative of the humble and poor, and this was mainly in the South and the West. Whigs are, um, they advocate a harmonious society, the Bank of the United States, protective tariffs, internal improvement, and more aristocratic matters, which is mostly in the East and the North. So this actually concludes this episode for today as we talked about Jackson's term. But as a short summary of some of the political parties of America, to this point, I'll be going over some of them. So first of all, in around the 1700s, we had the Federalists. 
These Federalists die out in 1815. But we also had the, Jefferson, the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans. If you remember, these Federalists and the Jeffersons, they were um, between Hamilton and Jefferson. Now, these Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans essentially become Democrats, and they extend all the way to the present and past the 1940s. But a continuation of the Federalists are the Whigs. So honestly, they are pretty much just like an evolved version of the Federalists. They adopt a lot of Federalist ideas. Uh, and, but then, unfortunately, they die out in the mid-1850s, which is their ideas evolves again and is continued by the Republican Party, which also continues past the 1940s. So that concludes my episode for today, and I hope that you guys are once again able to learn something new from this interesting episode as we talked about Andrew Jackson and the battle for the Bank of the United States. Stick around, and I'll talk to you guys next time.